Hello, listeners, and welcome to the pod episode seven. Is it episode seven? It is episode seven, I believe. Yeah, like I said, it's going to be kind of weird uh, counting all of these episodes. It's going to get to a certain point where we're not going to be able to keep track anymore, Jeff. Yeah, we're just going to say, here's an episode, and you're going to have to figure it out. But until then, episode seven, welcome. I'm Justin, and with me, as always... Rob the Riz Lifer. We have a great, great show for you today. We're going to be hitting a lot of cool stuff, and we have great guests as part of our interview, which will be posted separately, Charlie and Lisa Spees. More on that later. But first, as always, Honest Abe's housekeeping hangout. When he growed up this tiny babe, folks all called him Honest Abe. Abraham, Abraham. Okay, Honest Abe's housekeeping hangout. So... We had said uh, from the onset that this portion of the show would be for us to clarify things that we said on previous shows or to tamp down some anger, listener rage, if you will, which, by the way, Jay, I have a feeling is going to always be on me for some reason. That's so weird. You'd think it'd be me. Yeah, no, for whatever reason, I have I've always had a way of offending people, and I don't believe that's going to change anytime soon. Well, uh, you, we always say the left eats its own, so you're going to get eaten a little bit. I, I, I'm prepared to be eaten. Uh, from what my mother has told me, I'm absolutely delicious and sweet. We figured for this housekeeping hangout, because we didn't get any actual backlash or anyone... Um, you know, rejecting something we said or... or Which is like one of the first episodes that's, that hasn't happened. So thanks, guys. Yeah, exactly. Got a lot of, we got a lot of good feedback. Everyone's pretty happy last week. Is that, yeah, I think it's actually our, our most well-received episode so far. So we, f- we figured for this housekeeping hangout, it wouldn't just be for clarification's sake. We would also use it to talk about certain cultural issues that are maybe outside of just politics, but that relate to other things that we've talked about in the past on previous episodes. So for this housekeeping hangout, I wanted to talk about a band, okay? I was in the, uh, I was in the record store a couple weeks ago when Los Angeles finally opened back up again a little bit. I was dying to go to the record did store. Did you wear your mask? I did wear my mask, Jay. Thank you for asking. Good man. Good man. And I, you know, I went to the bargain bin, as I am known to do right from the start. Love the bargain. You got to have the bargain bin. And there was an old copy of Rage Against the Machines' first record, their self-titled record, which came out in 1992. Now... For all you old timers out there, you know, probably people over the age of 50, maybe you recognize the name Rage Against the Machine. A lot of us call just call them Rage. Uh, so you might have heard that name. Maybe you heard your kids or your cousins talking about them. You might not be able to place it. So this is up for debate. And we could probably have three episodes just on this that would be completely not political episodes. But if I was hard pressed to pick uh, the two most influential, groundbreaking, pivotal bands of my generation, I would say, obviously, Nirvana would be one. And I think Rage Against the Machine, you could make a really good case for them being two. Not just from a musical standpoint, but also from a thematic and lyrical standpoint. But before we even get there, uh, let's go over generational status for a second, Jay. Because I am 40 years old. Jay, you are turning 38, right? You're a couple years younger than me. Turning 39, but I'll take that year. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, turning 39, that's what I meant. We are, I think Jay is technically a millennial. It's so technical. It's by a year. Yeah, exactly. And I, I think I just missed the cutoff because I was born in 1980. But we're also not Gen Xers. And a lot of uh, people have made a new category between the two called Xennial, which is obviously a combination of the two. It's very clever. And the it's sort of defined by an analog childhood and a digital adulthood. So, you know, Jay and I, we grew up with vinyl when we were really young and then cassette tapes. I didn't buy my first CD till I was 14. No matter how wealthy you were, we all had 37 channels on our TV. There was no internet yet, you know. So we, I'm really glad that we got to experience all of that. What was the first album you bought? The very first CD I bought was Nirvana's Nevermind. Me too. There we go. We have something in common. Followed by the Black Album. Me too. Exactly. We literally bought the same first two albums. So funny. Back to Rage Against the Machine. Rage was really the first band that successfully blended hip hop elements with heavy rock in a mainstream setting. And so if you know anything about music today, hip hop is a very important part of mainstream music today. And I think Rage did play a a pivotal role in in making that happen. Uh, They were also the preeminent sort of overtly political band of our generation. Uh, The name tells the whole story, Rage Against the Machine, the machine being that of the Western American system. So this record came out in 1992. 
I was 12 years old. Jay was 10 or 11. I'll only speak for myself, but I was not nearly sophisticated or smart enough to understand what they were talking about. These are very deep, deep topics, topics that we're talking about still to this day, obviously. Being a Jewish kid in Long Island, that was my world. I had no idea about this other world. I listened to it because the music was frankly just awesome and still is. You put the record on, it just, it bounces off the speakers. It's it, They're just an incredible band. For you as a guitar player, I have to think that Tom Morello was doing some of the most interesting things with the guitar that sounds that no one else was making. Yeah, I was actually going to get to that. Tom Morello is, I think he's probably the Hendrix of our generation in terms of his technical ability and the way he reinvented the instrument. I mean, the guy is an absolute genius. He was sort of the modern day shredder, just did things that nobody did before. And, you know, the first time I heard Rage, I was like, what the hell is that? Just the sounds and the, the techniques he used, pretty impressive. Rage was an early 90s into late 90s band, and then they broke up. And I've listened to them off and on, but I've never really sat down and analyzed it. Um, and now as an adult and someone who's very politically aware, I took I bought the record for $7 and I took it home and I put it on and I listened to it cover to cover and read the lyrics and you know really studied it and listened to it and and I realized like holy crap, a lot of my generation got their political philosophy from Rage Against the Machine. That you're still seeing this ideology prevalent today, you're saying. Exactly. They're talking about the stuff that is just as, if not more, relevant today. I think that it was just as relevant back then, but it's been brought to the fore in recent years and especially in recent months with the George Floyd thing and everything that's that's happened since. Uh, The main theme of the lyrics is that the entire system, the Western American capitalist free market system, is corrupt from the root up. It was corrupt and immoral from its inception, from its founding, and everything that derives from it, including our entire government, both Republicans and Democrats, our entire government is fruit of the poisonous tree. So listening to it, I think we can safely say that these guys are not liberals. They're not Democrats. In fact, they see Joe Biden and Hillary Clinton in the same exact light as they see Reagan and Bush and Trump. They're not liberals. You could make a strong case that they're of the left. They're far, far left. But I see their ideology in the same light that I see groups of people who are tearing down non-racist statues right now, for instance. This anarchistic ideology. The idea is that the entire system is so corrupt that we cannot separate good men from bad men. It's all bad. Everything is, again, fruit of the poisonous tree. So. I wanted to make the point that first, that ideology, I believe, makes up a very small subset of the left. No matter how much Fox News tries to convince you that this is the general consensus on the left, I still think it's a very small subset, about the same size as the right-wingers who are white supremacists. Sure, but you know what? As we talked about in other episodes, it's getting a ton of media coverage because it's ratings. It's, It's interesting. It's fringe. It's exciting. It's something to pit both sides against each other. It gets everyone heated. It's that for sure. And it's also, I mean, it's definitely the media, but it's also right-wing media that has an incredible mobilization machine behind them that maybe we'll get to later, that they are able to take a narrative and just shove it down your throat to make you really think. If you watch Fox News for two straight weeks, you'll start thinking the entire left is this way. You know, it's it's all, you know, media plays a very big role in this, right-wing and mainstream media. Well, that's why we have you, Riz. You get to correct the record. I am a record corrector, Jay. Thanks for noticing. (laughs) So the irony, though, of course, with the whole Rage Against the Machine thing is that the dudes in Rage have made themselves very, very wealthy. And that is something that is uniquely American that I wanted to talk about for a minute, because isn't it? I mean, a country that is so free and so capitalistic that one can become hugely successful and wealthy off of calling the country evil and corrupt from the root up. You know, I can listen to it and read the lyrics as a well-informed adult and understand the rage and and sympathize with it and even empathize with it. As we've talked about, empathy is important. I can understand where it comes from. But 
With that said, the cognitive dissonance for me comes when I hear what they think the solutions are for these societal inequities that they're talking about, as we've been discussing. So the guitar player from Rage, which Jay mentioned, this guy Tom Morello, brilliant guy, brilliant guitar player, went to Harvard. So he's obviously a very bright guy, right? He's a big Bernie Sanders fan. He endorsed Bernie Sanders, goes to Bernie Sanders rallies. To this day, I think he's still a Bernie nut. I think he was actually disappointed in Joe Biden becoming the nominee. If you have songs in your catalog, as Rage does, called Take the Power Back, why you think that Bernie Sanders' brand of socialism that will essentially take private industries and put them in the hands of the federal government, overseen by unelected bureaucrats, is going to give you more power, is beyond me. You know, in other words, it seems as though the answer that the burn this, the quote, burn the systems down, burn the system down crowd typically promotes is an even bigger system whereby more of your hard earned money goes to the government so that people like Bernie Sanders get to decide what they want to do with it. That's not giving you more control. That's giving you less control over your future and over your destiny. So I'm listening to this. And again, I can sympathize with it. I can empathize with it, but I can disagree on what they apparently think the solutions are. Do you agree, Jay? I absolutely agree. And maybe they need to uh, start singing a new live version on their tours called Take the Power Back and Give It to Bernie Sanders. <laughs> I'm Bernie Sanders, and uh, I support Rage Against the Machine because uh, they are very fine young gentlemen, and uh, they support me, and uh, they have helped buy my three houses, and uh, they have very big houses too, and it is a testament to American capitalism. Oh, I mean uh, socialism. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, so to close this this segment out, um, I do think we should have a socialist, like a full socialist on the show. I have already reached out to a few people just to start a conversation. The last point I want to make, the, both the right and the left can do better. And, and, and that's sort of the moral of the story. When I was listening to Rage, I, I sort of put everything down. I thought about it and I thought the right has expended so much energy in calling these kind of people quacks, in calling them un-American, unpatriotic, uh, unappreciative, etc. And when you start off with that tone, there is nowhere you could go. If you just sit down with these people and say, I, I sympathize with you. I want to hear more about it. But also, I don't agree with the solutions. Let's talk about that. Then you have a much better jumping off point, And you actually, I think, will get people from the left to side with you more so. And, that, and, and the same theory, the same sentiment goes for people on the left. If we didn't paint right-wingers as always being evil or racist or this and that, if we just sat down and said, okay, what are your solutions and why do you believe these things? Maybe we could find that middle ground and actually get to some real solutions here. And that leads to our next point. Vote for us. <laughs> <laughs> if you were to sit down someone who, who believes in socialism and you went through the Constitution and you spoke about the constitutionalist issues with socialism, why our Constitution rubs against the doctrines by which this country was founded, and you, cre you, you created the argument in, in a sort of scientific way, I think it's irrefutable, but no one's willing to do that. Everyone just, you know, as we've spoken about before, just all degrades to name calling and then, then it's done. Exactly. Yeah. If we're all one people and we just sort of realize that we all want the same thing generally, most of us do, we just have different viewpoints on what the best way is to get there, we'd just be a lot better off. Uh, in summation, if you haven't listened to uh, Rage Against the Machine in a while, I suggest you go and uh, check it out. Um, the first record in particular is really, really good. I mean, just the, musically, it's incredible. Lyrically, it's incredible. Uh, and it's some of the best stuff that came out of, the, uh, of our generation, I believe. So check it out if you haven't. If we can find it, uh, we'll put up our cover of uh, Risen My Old Band playing a Rage song. We will indeed. We will indeed. All right, let's get into the main crux of the episode here. All right. So um, we wanted to pick up a little bit where we left off last week. If you remember, we did say that we had talked so much about this stuff. It was mostly about Trump and about religious conservatism and how uh, those things fit together, if you will. Um, we didn't get to a lot of things we were supposed to get to. So we are going to continue where we, where we left off. And the first thing I wanted to talk about was whataboutism. Now, for those who don't know what aboutism, it's basically, uh, you know, you're going out with your friends tonight. You know, well, what about 
when you went to Cancun with your girls for a two week vacation last year. You know, that's that's what about ism. What about this? What about that? Interesting choice, Riz. Does that, that yeah. come up in your house or something? <laughs> not yet. Not yet. But I do anticipate it eventually coming up. Yeah, for sure. It's a very useful political tool that both sides use. The whataboutism for the left will forever, as we touched upon last week, be what about Trump from now on, at least for the rest of my lifetime. I was a little hyperbolic, I realized last week when I said for the next hundred years. Um, maybe that's not the case. Uh, I was, again, there was, there was little, you have to give Riz a little leeway for hyperbole, right, Jay? Time will tell. Time will tell. <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll let it speak for itself. Right. But yeah, you know, the Riz uh, likes to uh, extend a metaphor and, you know, have a little fun and nothing wrong with that. Exactly. But the truth of the matter is, at least I think for the rest of my lifetime, when the right tries to do their pivot back to religious conservatism and family values. It is always going to be, what about Trump? What about Trump? Now, the, the right has plenty of whataboutism they use as well. The big ones are, what about Clinton? What about Kennedy? You know, especially when it comes to the morality of those two men. I've been hearing the, what about Kennedy one used even more recently, which is really bizarre because Kennedy was a long, long time ago in a much different time. We know for a fact that Kennedy was not necessarily a man of virtue in his personal life. He was a womanizer. Uh, We know all about this. Again, it was a different time. I think we do have to stress that and put it in the context. But no, uh, the Kennedys in general had, uh, they were great leaders. They, I think they loved their country. Um, but they had, all of the Kennedys had things about them that, that were not ideal for people in politics. I mean, do you agree, Jay? I agree. And, uh, you know, saving this for later, but I, I, I do think, and I've said this for a long time, um, far before you and I even have started having political dialogue. If a person gets to a place where he's in a position to be president, he will have done things that you would not want your president to do. Now, that could be personally or politically, but that's almost always the case. And this was, this was Kennedy's, this is President Kennedy's uh, flaw. You know, obviously, we don't even have to get into President Clinton's flaws. We know all of them. We knew, you know, it's on page one of the newspaper, right? Now, the difference between conservatives and liberals on, soci- on societal morality is that liberals or progressives or whatever you want to call them have never cared about it and shouldn't by design. We touched upon this last week. That is part of liberalism. The, the, the general attitude towards Clinton when that scandal was happening was sort of like, eh, so what? You know, that's, that, that is part of liberalism. Not being outraged over Clinton and Kennedy is what being a liberal is about. So liberals historically, as I said last week, we don't care about what's going on in consenting adults' bedrooms. Conservatives, on the other, on the other hand, have cared about that deeply. You know what? Let's hear what Chris Rock has to say about it. Clinton damn near got impeached for what? For what? Lied about a job so his wife wouldn't find out. Is that against the law? Do you need the Supreme Court for that one? You could have took that one to the People's Court. Could have took that one to Judge Judy. She'd have knocked it out in a half hour plus commercials. That's right. See, people, everybody expects this holy behavior because he the president. Expect him to behave this holy way. He's just the president. He ain't Reverend Clinton. It ain't Pastor Clinton. It ain't Maharaja Clinton. It is just Bill Clinton. He's just a man. A man gonna be a man. A man is basically as faithful as his options. And you see all these fat Republican guys going, I would never do such a thing. This is a travesty. I'm like, nobody's trying to you. Ain't no 20-year-old girls trying to Orrin Hatch. Nobody trying to give Newt Gingrich some. The irony of that clip is that Newt Gingrich was having an affair during that whole scandal, who and and the woman ended up being his next wife, and he's still married to her today. So I guess somebody was trying to give Newt Gingrich some. There you go, Chris Rocky wasn't all right. <laughs> so that's a really old clip at this point. It's comedy, of course, but the sentiment in that clip, I think, is generally what. Uh, liberals felt about the whole thing and frankly what they should feel about the whole thing it's again I I keep using this term live and let live if he wanted to get BJ's under the table that doesn't affect my life I don't care go ahead do it the conservative view is that and you said you consider yourself a moral person so if you view that as a high standard of society why would you not vote that way the conservative argument being that people who are concerned with morals 
you know, societal rules can uphold the law, which is based on morality. They can maintain order. They can defend Western culture. And what you're defining, in my view, is moral relativism, which can be a slippery slope. Yeah. And, and, and I would say, what about Trump? <laughs> you know, that's where the whataboutism comes in. So there, I agree with you. But there has been this Republican shift in the way in, in the wake of Trump to libertarianism, which is we don't care what Trump did or does in his personal life. Now, I'm going to hit the Democrats for a second, because the way the Democrats have handled everything in, in the Trump era has been completely wrong. And I've been, you know, I've been screaming at the television for four years over this. Where the Democrats messed up is they pretended to be outraged over Trump's behavior. And that doesn't work for Democrats, okay? You, it, it's the wrong tactic. If I was a congressman, if I'm Congressman Leifer from the great state of California, and I'm walking down the halls of Congress, and Manu Raju from CNN comes up to me and says, oh, Mr. Leifer, uh, what do you think about uh, the fact that Donald Trump was sleeping with a porn star at, uh, you know, with a new baby at home? You know what I would have said? I would have said, huh, yeah, you know, I, maybe I'd try the same thing. You know, make make light of it. Make, like, honestly, I, I mean, I'm joking to a certain extent, but make make light of it Instead of doing the sort of Cory Booker outraged eyes thing where you're always like, oh, this is a travesty, it doesn't work for liberals. It's counterproductive. But what I would follow it up with if I was asked about that kind of thing in the halls of Congress is I would say, but you know who you should ask about this. You should go over to the other side and ask Orrin Hatch. Or you should ask Lindsey Graham, Lindsey Graham, who was saying you could not detach character from the presidency. See what they have to say about it, because that's what I'm curious. I don't really care what Donald Trump does in his personal life, but I want to know what they have to say about it. That would have been the way to handle it as a Democrat. Well, it's sort of how you were describing last week that your outrage is not at Donald Trump the man. It's at the, the people that are, that are being hypocritical. And part of that, actually, you could say would be the left for now voicing outrage when that's not really the brand. Yeah, it's it, without getting too much into outrage, 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 like we did last week, it, that is exactly, the, I should reiterate the point that I believe most liberals are not outraged over Trump's behavior, but outraged over the Republican conservative indifference to it. That is a huge distinction to make. And if you... If the if Democrats t you know went with that a little bit more instead of always acting outrage whether it's Nancy Pelosi or Cory Booker or one of these other people who are just so angry have the angry eyes on all the time you know the Mr Potato Head angry eyes yeah I mean I I saw a picture of uh, the recently the the picture with the Kente class Nancy Pelosi's got this unbelievable stare I mean some of the uh, the guys are like sitting there with their arms crossed like superhero pose and it's that's really something to see <laughs> it is it is yeah it's a uh... What's going on is just so crazy. I mean, it, listen, both sides are full of crap. That's that's the bottom line here. I that's think we'll, we'll, we're probably going to end up there so many times. That's what this podcast is about, down the middle, because we agree that both sides are full of crap. But just from a strategic standpoint, if I was a Democratic, uh, you know, analyst or something or, you know, a pollster, I would say to them. Number one, stop using the word racist. It's old. You've overused it. Number two, stop acting so outraged. Point that outrage back at the people who are supposed to be outraged. That would be the, the way to do it. But, you know, I'm not a congressman. I probably never would be. Yeah. But, you know, you sound like you sound like a strategist. I, maybe I'll, I will be a political strategist, Jay. Thank you for the vote of confidence there. You're welcome. We'll talk to Lisa and Charlie later. <laughs> All right. So next thing we wanted to get into was a little bit about cancel culture. I know you guys have probably all heard the term at this point. Cancel culture, I think Jay and I can both agree, is terrible. And it has to end in order for our democracy to survive. Amen. Nobody should be judged on things they said 15 years ago. Nobody should lose their job over it. And we have so many examples of this. And it is, it is a terror. It's probably my least favorite phenomenon on the left. We've seen it now with really innocuous things, like Kevin Hart, for instance, who is a comedian who is, by all accounts, just a great guy. He's, you know, he's been a family in, man. Family man. He's been in children's movies. You know, these crazy people. And I will say, I think it is a left-wing thing mostly, will go digging into, the, into their social media or you know, go back 15, 20 years. I mean, Kevin Hart's a comedian. And I guess he said something 
derogatory towards gay people and it was it was just a joke it wasn't even that bad it was just something about his son or something i don't even remember the exact details of it but he basically lost his career over that yeah yeah i mean there's a there's a whole documentary if you want to watch it the reason he lost his career by the way was not the tweet it was his what i think it was a appropriate response and it was him not understanding why are you trying to cancel me over this? I'm different. I've, there was a lack of empathy that just wasn't jiving with him. And I completely agree with that. I understand his response to it. And because there were that friction existed, the voices on the left got louder. Right. And, and, you know, I said this before, I think, episodes ago, and I'll say it again. If we don't cut this crap out, we are going to only be left with politicians like Donald Trump. Because everyone's got skeletons in their closet. And the thing that makes Donald Trump so toxic is that he doesn't give a crap about his skeletons. He's the kind of guy who never apologizes, doesn't think he ever does anything wrong. If he does do something wrong, won't acknowledge it, doesn't want to learn, all of that. This, if we don't cut this cancel culture behavior out, and I'm not even just talking at a government level, I'm also talking if you work for a company, you shouldn't be afraid that things you've said 10 years ago on Twitter or on Facebook are going to come back to haunt you. You know, it, it it's just ridiculous. It is. One of the biggest problems is that it's completely decontextualized. We are taking things, and I, I mean, some of this has to do with, you know, some of the statute things that are, that are happening as well right now, uh, not to get into it, but the history is decon decontextualized, and whatever is done 15, 20, 30, 40, whatever, however many years ago, is then placed into the standards we have presently in our culture, and I, that is a horrible thing to do. It's horrible, and it, what it does, and by the way, if you guys hear my dog barking, there's just nothing I could do about that. So. What's up, Ollie? <laughs> yeah. It also makes it so that the only people who are good people are apparently people who are living right now. Literally this second, because five seconds from now, those people, there's going to be better people. That's right. <laughs> and, and, and those people won't be good either. So this is a really bad thing. It has to stop. It's very dangerous. But with all that said, it would be wrong of me to not also talk about the cancel culture that has existed on the right for many years. This is both sides, both sides, okay? I'm not doing whataboutism here. I'm just doing both sidesism. Is that a word? We don't want to be a, a current events show. We've said that many, many times. And so this is something that's happening now, but we want to explore the sort of ideology, the history of something, where it comes from, what happened in years past, some things you may not be aware of. And so I think that's important to do. Right, exactly. Very good point, Jay. Um, you know, Tommy Laren, who is, if you don't know her, she's one of the just execrable uh, Fox News hosts who doesn't know anything but is just blonde and pretty. So they put her on the TV and ask for her opinions. Um, and she's, you know, also one of those Fox News people who's bordering on white nationalism. But uh, she did a whole segment a few weeks ago about how we have to cancel cancel culture. And I'm like, yeah, I agree with you. We should cancel cancel culture. Uh, but who engaged in cancel culture first for the majority of American history long before it was a liberal thing? I mean, book burning, lectures on morality of art, the conservative attempt to ban things that they find immoral. Uh, a few weeks ago, I was watching the movie Milk with uh, Sean Penn. Sean Penn, thank you. Uh, Sean Penn's probably his best performance, I think. If you haven't watched it, you really should. Uh, it's about Harvey Milk, who was the first openly gay person to hold uh, public office in San Francisco. A lot of the movie talks about Anita Bryant, um, which at the time was an anti-gay conservative activist who was trying to get a law passed in San Francisco that basically said, if you were gay, you couldn't teach in school. That's cancel culture. That's the same thing. I mean, it's essentially the same thing, but we could even go a step further. And to me, this is an even more glaring example of cancel culture. I remember, for those of you who don't remember the Columbine shooting, uh, it was probably the first prominent school shooting. It happened in 1999. So I was like 18, 19 years old, and I remember it. You know, because I was old enough at that point, it was, I mean, it was a pretty devastating thing. It was, it really kicked off, I think, this whole spat of, uh, of school shootings that we've seen since then. But this was a particularly evil one because these kids showed up early in the morning. Uh, they just opened fire and, you know, had pipe bombs and they killed a lot of people. It was really, really bad. Um, and of course, uh, the left did what the left does, which they blame the guns. In fact, Michael Moore had an entire movie about 
this whole issue, which was called Bowling for Columbine. Uh, it's probably his best movie. I, I haven't liked anything he's done since, honestly. And the right did what the right did, which is try to cancel the people that they thought were uh, negatively affecting the culture. And one of those people happened to be the great Marilyn Manson. Apparently, the kids, the school shooters, loved Marilyn Manson. They were huge fans. They were listening to him all the time. They were writing about him. They made videos about him. He was one of their heroes. Now, I happen to know another person who got really into Marilyn Manson, and he became a Christian and has managed not to kill anybody. You know who I'm talking about, Jay? No idea. Who are you referring to? (laughs) Well, that would be my good friend, Jay. And in fact, I went through a big Marilyn Manson phase, too, and I managed not to kill anybody. Uh, But nevertheless, the Republican at the time, governor of Colorado, completely canceled Marilyn Manson. I think it was like a good five or ten years where Manson wasn't even allowed to play in Colorado. That's cancel culture, isn't it? I think the difference now is that it's uh, maybe it's because of social media, but someone gets canceled, it's it's their career. And that didn't stop Manson. In fact, I think he got more press for it. You know, not only was I into Marilyn Manson, I knew Marilyn Manson. You know, I, w- I grew up in South Florida. I grew up in this movement. It's mo- an act. In this movement, and that's where I'm going. So I think that the, the, the fight against him was really more of a Christian agenda imperative that led to the conservative base arguing about the anti-establishment connotations. But the truth is that this is a big troll of both groups by Manson himself. You know, like I said, I was part of this movement when it began in South Florida. I knew him and this was incredible marketing and he got great press from it. And the music was great. He's not a devil worshiper. He's not an anarchist. And I've since hung out with him in LA. It's still the case. He's upset at the system, but no more than anyone else. And this was just a giant capitalistic trolling, and he's benefited from it. You know, he faked an onstage abortion, fake, on top of a Nazi flag, and he got the requisite press and the requisite album sales from it. And I think that the conservatives and liberals are actually closer together than they think they are on this particular issue. It's two halves of a whole. And I think we'll find that more and more. We live in a culture that accepts violence a great deal more than others. We have the Second Amendment that's protected us through some rough times in our history and is part of our current culture. And our culture is the reason we have guns, and guns are the instrument through which these attacks were carried out. But the acceptance of gun culture and insensitivity to violence because of that culture, they come together in a perfect storm in situations like Columbine. Both sides are saying the same thing here, and to take it a step further, it's not just the guns. The guns are the instrument, so that is part of the problem, but it's also parenting. It's easy access to information. It's video games like Call of Duty, countless films that a young mind has access to that they may not know how to process. Right. No, totally. I am a big supporter of parents, though, making the decisions for what their children can view, what their children can listen to, and not the government. And that actually segues into another thing I wanted to say, which is that uh, this is not just a right-wing thing. Uh, Tipper Gore, who was Al Gore's wife uh, in 1990, Uh, created the parental advisory sticker. If you guys remember that to this day, if you go to a record store and you pick up something that has obscene content, sometimes it doesn't even have to be obscene content. Sometimes it could just be the F-bomb just once and it gets the sticker. The first record ever was 1990, uh, Two Live Crew. That was the first record to ever have. And then, uh, you know, I think they went back, they put them on Guns N' Roses' Appetite for Destruction, which I listened to when I was, you know, a kid. And Uh, I have to believe my parents were screening some of that. If they weren't, hey, guess what? I still turned into a moral human being anyway. But, you know, art is art. I mean, uh, Alice Cooper uh, was the same way in the 70s and early 80s. uh, He was looked at as a devil worshiper and a Satanist. He has said that it was just vaudeville. And ironically, always been a Christian. (laughs) Christian and a Republican from what I hear. Yeah, Yeah. yeah. and Uh, a great golfer. I was just going to say a golf playing Republican and look at that. But here, the point is in summation here that I think the Democrats and, and we could use the Tipper Gore parental advisory sticker. The Democrats are more inclined to think that the government should regulate issues of morality when those issues do come up on the left. The Christian conservative thinks that they should regulate morality. Now, what I think is that both are wrong. Morality should come from our upbringing, from our personal relationship with God, if you're a person of faith, but it should never be pushed upon us by government or church if we never ask for either's help. Your comment on the Christian conservatives is is half right. I do think that they that there's a want for the regulation of morality. However, I don't think they're asking for it to come from them. Christians believe that we are flawed and fallen, and we do want the Judeo-Christian ethic to regulate morality, but that doesn't come from us. That comes from Scripture. It comes from God. 
which is, you know, what our founding documents, as I've said before, are built upon. And like, how do you know it's wrong to murder someone? Well, it's written in the Ten Commandments. That morality comes from that Judeo-Christian ethic, whether you're aware of it or not. Prior to the Judeo-Christian ethic, we had paganism. We had things like child sacrifices for, you know, more rain or good crops. These were accepted norms because we didn't have the presence of a moral and ethically sound system of law. So I agree completely with you, but I do think checks and balances are necessary. It's the reason why the FCC was founded. It's a commission to maintain jurisdiction over media responsibility and public safety. In essence, morality, one of the four goals currently in their strategic plan is to protect consumers and public safety. That's why there's a rating system. Whether that's an independent organization or the government, someone needs to regulate to some degree what happens on the airwaves for the good and health of society, because we can't always turn to parents that they may not be raising their children well. And I, so I think this topic, honestly, is worthy of its own episode, so I don't want to get into it too much, but there's lots of studies and an inordinate amount of research that shows the degradation of society outside a morally sound rule of law. Absolutely. And to that, I have to say, what about Trump? <laughs> it's not that I disagree with you. It's actually that, what about Trump? That is going to, you know, and that's why I have to believe that Donald Trump's presidency is a net negative for conservatism in general, because Anytime you try to explain a nuanced version of what you just tried to say, exactly what you said, which was incredibly well-researched and brilliant, anytime you try to say something like that, somebody on the left is going to say, well, you didn't care with Trump, you know, and, and, and so it does a disservice to the movement does a disservice to the entire party. I was never happy with the Tea Party way back when it started. I, I started to distance myself from the Tea Party movement. I'm not a fan of it. I, I, and I think that that has led to Trump. And I think it's done a disservice to the party on the whole. And it's why you see such a division in the party itself. We're going to do a new segment here. And this is something called Mitt Romney's Milk Toast Mistakes. Let's play a theme. Mitt Romney style. Romney style. Mitt Romney, if you haven't noticed, and, and this is maybe a couple weeks old at this point in the news cycle, but Mitt Romney went to the Black Lives Matter march, as we talked about, I think, last week a little bit. We touched upon it. And the Republicans sort of created this new argument. I, I, again, I, I will stress, I listened to all the Republican commentators, and I, I hear what this, they were all talking about, how this argument that we, Romney is Mr. Nice Guy. And you guys still tried to win, even though we gave you Mr. Nice Guy. So we had no choice but to give you Mr. Instead, you know, we tried to give you Mr. War Hero and John McCain. You didn't like that. We tried to give you Mr. Nice Guy, the Milk Toast Romney. You didn't like that. So we had to go with Mr. We had no choice. We had just no choice. So there's there's a tweet uh, from this guy at Atrios on tw on Twitter. A T R I O S. He's a great follow. He's sort of a comedic. Um, commentator uh, who I think works for one of the major uh, political media companies. But anyway, he tweeted a couple weeks ago, and I just thought this was so perfectly, this was perfect in, to sum this, this topic up. He said, the conservative position on Rom Romney is basically, we nominated the nice former governor of Massachusetts, and you were supposed to reward us by surrendering the, the election and voting for him instead of doing dastardly things like quoting him. It's a combination of Republicans have the right to rule by default and how dare you hit us back. <laughs> so they think nominating Romney was a concession. We gave you someone we thought you would be happy with and you tried to win anyway. And to me, this sums up the modern day GOP, that they have this sort of entitlement that they're supposed to rule. And Donald Trump is what happens when they didn't get their way. Yeah, it's interesting. I know. First of all, I think it's Atrios. And for all those West Wing fans out there, I will. This is actually surprisingly episode seven. This is I haven't gotten to my absolute insane love for the West Wing. It's my favorite show of all time. I'm always watching it at some point. And there is a blogger named Atrios uh, towards the end of the series. So that, that could be where this guy got his name from. I'm not sure. You know, it's interesting that you bring this up because when I think back to Romney's campaign, 
I think about the resistance to his uh, religion. I think about resistance to him on a number of levels. I definitely think about the resistance to him as a milk toast candidate and the lack of personality that he had that we saw later in things like his Netflix documentary that we see in him giving speeches against Trump and voting against Trump and walking in the in the marches just things that he would never have outwardly done maybe because he was terrified of people judging him prior to that election but it's interesting and I never thought about it in this context and it's, it's something to give thought to. Do I think that the GOP is entitled or do think that they're entitled to win? I don't know. I, I did buzzed history last week. There were great groupings of time when both parties held sway for a long period of time. That's why I said modern day GOP. Sure. No, absolutely. But I think you have to go back in history to understand an entitlement issue. You have to go back to the beginning of a party system to understand why they act a certain way now. And, you know, I think if you go back and listen to the Buzz History segment, maybe you'll find that in the GOP. It's, it's an interesting exercise. Very, very good point. So go back and do that. Okay, we have a new segment. New segment! New segment, and it's called Partisanship, a Hell of a Drug. That's a hell of a drug. So, this is a new segment. We're going to bring it back from time to time to just point to how partisanship is a drug that both sides get addicted to, like heroin. The first thing I want to do is I want to make an analogy, as I'm apt to do. You know what, Riz? You love an example. You love an analogy. Keep them coming. Let's do it. Okay. My analogy is that Trump is a mud monster. Okay, Trump, let's let's envision Trump. He's wearing a tuxedo and the tuxedo is fully made of mud. It's not cotton. It's not polyester. It is just mud. He shows up at the the ballroom, you know, with with the mud tuxedo on. Right. So if you take a large piece of mud and you throw it at the mud monster, it just blends in with the other mud and you can't see it at all. Okay, you just everything gets baked into the cake and he just becomes a bigger mud monster. And everyone's like, yeah, it's just a guy wearing a mud suit, whatever. I can't tell which mud this is new mud or old mud. It, it, all mud starts to look the same after a while. Now, Biden, on the other hand, is sort of wearing a white tuxedo with a few stains from the cocktail sauce on it. And those stains are probably stupid things he said in the past or policies that he supported that are now bad policies or, you know, people he was friends with already. So, or, you know, so maybe he's got some of these stains on his tuxedo. But if you take a piece of mud and you throw it at someone like Joe Biden, who's wearing the white tuxedo, that is what's going to stand out. And this is part of, of sort of the partisanship aim of trying to paint Joe Biden in a certain light, okay? Um, now, it's not just the personal morality uh, that that I'm talking about here. Yes, Joe Biden has been accused of, of I think, once or twice now of coming too close or sexual har- harassment by this uh, Tara Reid, who, by the way, every right-wing character was saying, even we think this is kind of sketchy, this whole allegation. Trump has been, has been alleged 18 to 20 times. And again, no one cares because he's wearing the suit of mud. So 30 more women could come out and say something about Trump. It's not going to matter for him. It's not going to take him down. But Beyond the moral stuff, it's also policy related. And I think we need to talk about this for a little bit. There are things that Trump has done that would have been eternally panned had a Democratic president done them. Before we get into policy, I, I got to talk about, and I haven't heard, I've been waiting for just any journalist, anyone on the news to say, isn't it weird how she has the same name as Tara Reid? <laughs> that's really true you know i i have thought that several times how do you not right <laughs> and i feel bad for the real tara reed getting back to policy and uh, again partisanship a hell of a drug because these kind of things would have been panned had a democratic president done them donald trump you know kim jong-un's move with the help of trump from a tin pot dictator to a legitimate world leader this was one of the more just 
crazy, abhorrent things that Trump has engaged in. Uh, Tommy Vitor, who is on the podcast Pod Save America, who even though they're a competitor of ours, I suggest you check out. Uh, he put he put up a tweet. Remember the roadblock coverage given to the U.S. DPRK Singapore summit? People taking serious calls for Trump to get the Nobel Peace Prize. Since then, North Korea has added enough nuclear material for 20 more nukes. Feels like the actual results deserve some follow-up. 100% right. If that was Barack Obama or Hillary Clinton, who was legitimizing one of the one of the worst people in the world, who keeps his entire population in a giant gulag state and is literally a god king, not just a king, but someone to be worshipped. Religion is outlawed in in North Korea. He is the religion. Yeah, it's not it's not God King Little G like Jeremy Boring. It's God King the Big G. Exactly, God King G, Big G. Very good, very good distinction there. Um, you know, it's just again, if a Democratic president had done that and not gotten anything out of it except to prop up this tin pot dictator, it would, it would be all that Fox News and the right wing media is talking about. And we have to point that out. But beyond that, I'm sure all of you have now heard the Bolton book has come out and all of the allegations he makes. Now, Bolton was a GOP golden boy for a long time. I mean, he was on Fox. Everyone had incredible respect for Bolton until now. And why do you think that is, Jay? Uh, is it the mustache? <laughs> I mean, the truth is, my dad worked for the man and he has had a, a great amount of respect for him. He's been in the press a lot lately for obvious reasons. Now, let's cut to the chase. Let's see some of the stuff he's had to say about Donald Trump. Also used the phrase in the book that Trump's pattern looked like obstruction of justice as a way of life, which we couldn't accept. Obstruction of justice as a way of life? Look, these were things that I could see some evidence of, and they bothered me greatly. I talked to uh, the attorney general about them. I talked to the counsel to the president about them. I've talked to other members of the cabinet about them uh, and uh, relayed my concerns, and they, they were very much on my mind. You described the president as erratic, foolish, behaved irrationally, bizarrely. You can't leave him alone for a minute. He saw conspiracies behind rocks and was stunningly uninformed. He couldn't tell the difference between his personal interests and the country's interests. I don't think he's fit for office. I, I don't think he has the competence to carry out the job. There really isn't any guiding principle uh, that I was able to discern other than uh, what's good for Donald Trump's re-election. That is one of the scariest accounts I've heard, and it's to be taken extremely seriously. This is a man who has no agenda, in my opinion, than the good of the country. I can speak to that personally because of the things that my father says about him. And the way that he has spoken, and I'm looking forward to reading his book, uh, looking forward to being, you know, uh, I'll probably be reading it, biting my fingernails off. but. It's something to be taken very seriously, and I hope people do take it seriously. Not that we didn't know these things before, but this is literally a firsthand account of someone who is sitting next to the man and is speaking to what we have put in office. For those who don't know this, the, the, John Bolton was the national security advisor from 2018 to 2019. This is a very serious, sober man. Um, I don't believe he's just trying to sell books. I, I mean, it's ludicrous for, the, for that to be the narrative. This is a guy who's basically saying in all the interviews he's giving that this guy's dangerous. He is a narcissistic, nihilistic uh, idiot, essentially, which is what a lot of people are willing to say. And there needs to be more people on board with that idea. And again, and we talk about this a little bit in the interview that's coming up at the end of this episode. but. Uh, my contention is that once Trump loses, if Trump loses, you will see everyone in the party stepping up and, and saying that they agreed with this and that for political reasons, they weren't able to speak their minds about it. I really think that's going to happen. A great many people in politics in Washington, they, this is their livelihood. This is their job. And they want to get things moving. They want to make a difference. They, they have agendas. And not all of them are bad. They have decided on this as a career because they want to make this country a better place. If you are shut out of the administration in Washington, you, you can't get anything done, whether that's four years or eight years. And unfortunately, I think that the man that Donald Trump is, and I can also speak from experience here because my father and him have done business before. If you are not with him, you are against him. And if you are against him, you are dead to him. Period. 
And so that's why I agree with you. I think that a lot of people to forward the discussion in Washington have gone behind him. And if he is not reelected, you will see them run away very quickly. Yeah. I mean, if you were paying attention during the Obama years, yeah, you know, the, the right was constantly attacking Obama as his apology tour. You know, this idea that he was going around the country and apologizing for Americanism or whatever, uh, which I, I mean, we could probably do a whole episode on that. But the point is that Donald Trump is propping up tin pot dictators. Uh, he ha- is handing over Afghanistan to the Taliban. Uh, ben Shapiro, who we've mentioned many times on the show now, he did an entire episode about how huge of a mistake that is, leaving our allies, the Kurds, to die there. Uh, something that I'm old enough to remember, you know, they attacked Obama for even being willing to talk to the Taliban. Trump is basically taking the troops out and giving the entire region back to the Taliban. It's really, really dangerous. Then we found out just yesterday, last night, I believe, that uh, the New York Times is reporting that Russia secretly offered Afghan militants bounties to kill U.S. troops. That's according to American intelligence. That has been now uh, confirmed by European intelligence. And the excuse from the Trump administration was that Trump and his administration weren't briefed on this intelligence. Now, that's either one of two things. Either one, they're lying which is very dangerous, or two, the intelligence community sees Donald Trump as such a threat to America that they're literally withholding very vital intelligence from the commander in chief. This is dangerous stuff. And what John Bolton says in these interviews is is like nothing we've ever heard before in American history. It's confirming a theory that I've had for a long time and that it's this has all been from the very beginning a legacy grab for Donald Trump. Every single time I see him with a dictator that where he's trying to, whether it's peace in the Middle East, which has been uh, near impossible, every time he focuses his attention on something like this and trying to bridge a gap, I do not believe that it's for the good of America. I think it is a legacy grab for him. He's trying to create something for himself, space for himself in the history books. And almost always it falls flat on its face. Okay, so that's partisanship, a hell of a drug. We're going to bring that back every once in a while to talk about when each party, both the Democrats and the Republicans, are overtly partisan and are addicted to it like heroin. We're going to go into now uh, a little bit of Biden talk. We haven't talked about Biden, but first, we are just segment geniuses today. We love bits. We love a good bit. We love a good bit. And uh, Jay has a little bit of his famous buzzed history to go through. Go ahead, Jay. Welcome to buzzed history. Some buzzed history context before we get into what we're getting into here. So I'm going to take you back to the end of World War I, the Great War. 70 million military personnel involved with an estimated 9 million combatant deaths and 13 million civilian deaths not to mention the 1918 influenza pandemic causing another 17 to 100 million deaths worldwide. 100,000 and 650,000 in America alone, respectively. Additionally, we had race riots, labor strikes, and anarchist bombings that followed. Unemployment was way up and stock prices were way down. It was an unprecedented time, much like how most of us are viewing life right now. In office, we had the first Southerner to hold the office since the Civil War, Woodrow Wilson, a two-term Democratic president who ushered in numerous progressive legislative policies and, as we've just discussed, led America begrudgingly into World War I after three years of neutrality. We begin at the election of 1920. World War I is over. The wartime boom is no more. The pandemic has ravaged the world. Teddy Roosevelt had died in 1919. Woodrow Wilson was living in seclusion. The world was in need of a next generation of great political minds. Now, at the Republican convention, the race for a nominee was deadlocked straight up until the 10th ballot when a dark horse candidate, Senator Warren G. Harding of Ohio, arose victorious, along with his running mate, a 37-year-old Franklin Delano Roosevelt. Harding was a safe choice who, after a progressive president and a world rocked by the events I just mentioned, promised voters... Harding was after, as he put it, not the old order, but a regular steady order of things, normal procedure, the natural way, without excess. 
Harding ran his campaign straight out of the playbook from 1890, and while his opponent, Ohio Governor James Cox, traveled 22,000 miles around the country to hold rallies, Harding remained firmly on his doorstep, echoing William McKinley's front porch campaign. This milquetoast, small-town politicking led him to a landslide victory, carrying 37 of 48 states, including every state outside the South, grabbing over 16 million votes. Majorities were also won in both chambers of Congress. In his inaugural address, Harding doubled down on his return to normalcy, stating, Our supreme task is the resumption of our onward, normal way. And that is how Warren G. Harding won the election. That was a great way to intro talk about Biden, because I believe that what Biden is doing, his campaign, is a, is a Warren G. Harding-style return to normalcy campaign. That is Biden's whole shtick here. That is what he's doing. So when you think to yourself, well, why is Biden sort of staying quiet? Why is he laying low? Because he's letting Donald Trump hang himself. His whole thing is, I'm old. You know me. I've been in Congress for 867 years. You know I was Barack Obama's right-hand man. You know the character that I have. And, you know, that it, we're going to return back to normal. I think Biden really does want to project the idea that when he is president, you're not going to be checking Twitter the first thing you do every morning to see what the president said, to get people's mind back to their family, to themselves, to not always worrying. And that's why he's he is intentionally laying low, being quiet, doing the bunker thing, quote, bunker thing that that, that let's, call, let's call it the front porch thing. Fine, exactly. You know, I think I think it's actually a sh- a smart strategy. I look at it as as sort of we've been on this desert island, let's call it Trump Island, for the last four years essentially, and all of a sudden we're all escaping Tom Hanks castaway style, you know, and we're 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 on the ocean, and you know we're close to death, and all of a sudden we see land in the distance, and standing on the land good old uncle joe and you're like i know him i know that guy that's that's kind of what i think he's trying to do here you know who i am you know what i'm not and that's a that seems like a pretty good pitch to me now i just want to say one thing because i think jay has something to say about this uh i think that the gop is freaking out because not just because of the poll numbers but because they just don't have the material that they had on Hillary Clinton. It's just it's just not there. The the GOP had a 30-year campaign against Hillary Clinton. They recognized her as a villain to the GOP 30 years before she even ran for president and they have been demonizing her and going after her for so many years. The uh, you know, the corruption claims, the constant investigations, she was a cornucopia of hits for the GOP for they could just keep going back to her and that was a really there's a lot of baggage that comes with that name there's a lot of baggage that comes with the Clinton name they knew it they took advantage of it and I think they're freaking out right now about Joe Biden because yes they tried the he's old and doddering I think people want old and doddering right now they tried the whole well he's got sexual allegations too but I don't think that's really sticking they tried the he's a creepy old man who rubs people's shoulders too much again not gonna really work I think people know Joe Biden's a good person and then you have ads like this from the Lincoln Project who where you see someone like Lindsey Graham who's a Republican who votes with Trump a lot and has become a Trump supporter, talking like this. Play the ad, Jay. Well, I want to talk to the Trump supporters for a minute. What is Donald Trump's campaign about? He's a race-baiting, xenophobic, religious bigot. And you know how you make America great again? Tell Donald Trump to go to hell. If you can't admire Joe Biden as a person, then it's probably you got a problem. <laughs> you need to do some self-evaluation. Because what's not to like? He is as good a man as God ever created. He said some of the most incredibly heartfelt things that anybody could ever say to me. He's the nicest person I think I've ever met in politics. This is a defining moment in the future of the Republican Party. We have to reject this demagoguery, and if we don't reject Donald Trump, we've lost a moral authority, in my view, to govern this great nation. 
So if this is Joe Biden's strategy, then it is a good one. And uh, I think most people would welcome a return to normalcy. And I think this is his best bet at winning the election. However, I have just read in the New York Times that Biden is working on a governing agenda that is, quote, far bolder than anything the party establishment has embraced before. Some proposals that are even from the Bernie playbook. So if I'm Biden, I want to scale that back. It's not smart. Because in the same way that you were just describing the right hitting Hillary because of certain agenda issues and certain historical uh, problems, it allows Trump to hit him hard in the same way. So if I'm Joe, I would sit back instead of starting to talk about any kind of agenda um, or, or proposal. Yeah, I mean, like I've said earlier in this episode, I believe these sort of fringe far left elements are way smaller in numbers than the media makes them out to be. If they weren't, Bernie Sanders would be the nominee, but he's not because I think most people still have a sense that they want that uh, normalcy, for lack of a better word. I think when you listen to that Lindsey Graham ad, this is a guy that everyone knows is a good guy. He's a good hearted guy. That is his pitch. It's that I'm a good guy and I'm going to do what's right for the country. Here's my problem with the ad. And you and I had talked about this because you sent me the ad and you're like, check out this ad. It's important that you watch this. I think it's going to, you know, it might move you. And my response was, it, it, it doesn't really do a lot for me. It didn't hit me uh, where I think the intention was. And that's because it doesn't really speak to Joe Biden. It just tells me that Lindsey Graham likes him. I want to know about his personality. I want to know about his political history, his legislative history, where he stands on the issues. I want to hear him speak. Biden's strategy so far has been a referendum on Trump, and I think it's smart, and it may well work. And maybe I'm not speaking for the normal voter here, but I would like a referendum on Biden before I vote for Biden. Do I want Trump for another four years? Nope. Do I need more reason than that to vote for someone who's going to institute what the New York Times is now saying, a great many policies that I'm not in favor of? Or, you know, I need a reason to not sit home on election day. And it's not just because this guy's not Trump. I want to know more about this guy. I'm just, I, I, I prefer to be a more intellectual voter in that way. No, totally. I, I absolutely get it. What are you voting for? But that brings us to, I think, our final segment of this show, where I do want to give a personal message. And we have, this is another new segment, isn't it, Jeff? It certainly is. We're full of segments and we're going to keep them coming. This segment is called Let's Get Personal. In this first episode of Let's Get Personal, I wrote a sort of personal article about what my family is going through in the wake of the COVID-19 crisis. And, uh, you know, maybe in future episodes, Jay will get personal about certain things. But here we go. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go ahead. And for all our listeners out there, I hope you enjoy it. I have said before that to me, one of the differences between liberalism and leftism is the fact that liberals don't blame society writ large for personal decisions that they make. As a liberal, I believe that all the decisions I have made in life, for better or for worse, have been my own and nobody else's. Some of my friends, who took more straight and narrow paths in life than I did, have gotten to live a life of less economic stress than I generally have. And that is due directly to decisions I have made in my life and not to societal inequities, as we have talked about on the show. With that said, COVID-19 wasn't my fault. As I've made clear, I believe the Trump administration did little to stop this virus when they had a chance. Of all the terrible things this administration has said and done, this is the one that is completely unforgivable to me. While some of my friends haven't been economically affected by this crisis, my family has been completely gutted. Both my wife and I are business owners. My work dried up a week into the crisis, and my wife's business, a very popular fitness studio in Los Angeles, was closed by order of the government. While we received compensation from our state government and small business association, the federal stimulus of $400 that we received was a joke. And whether or not our businesses survive is still very much up in the air. Whether or not we still get to live in Los Angeles and whether or not our kids will even go back to school in the fall is also uncertain. As a libertarian-leaning liberal, I prefer to have the government, both federal and state, take as little an active role in my life as possible. However, this is perhaps the one moment of our time when the majority of Americans are looking to their government and asking, what are you going to do for me? Like I said, the economic outcome of this disaster was no fault of our own. 
Governmental decisions essentially drove a Mack truck through our living room, and I passionately believe that the government has to compensate us for this. In other words, this is their mess, and they need to make it right. In times like these, libertarianism and self-sufficiency go out the window. This is such an important election, a pivotal election for me personally. It's not about historical monuments or radical leftism or any of the other red herring issues that exist, but rather exclusively about my family, my two little kids, and our abilities to survive financially and otherwise. Yes, Joe Biden has flaws, but nobody in the world is going to convince me that Donald Trump is going to be the one who will make this situation right for us. We have infinite evidence at this point that he is a self-centered, self-serving, nihilistic man who cares only about his political fortune and not about the people of this nation. We see that he is already downplaying both the health and economic severity of this crisis. He is attempting to paint the narrative that it's almost over and that the economy is going to come roaring back. He will continue to do this. He will deny the existence of the virus and the economic turmoil it has unleashed. He will continue to politicize the very things that could actually make it better, like mask wearing. And he will ultimately offer little to no help for the families that have lost everything. Joe Biden will not do this. At such a pivotal moment in American history, I need to at least trust the most powerful man in the world to have my back and trust that my government will do all that it can to get all of us back on our feet. This is why I will not necessarily be voting for Joe Biden, but against Donald Trump in 2020, and why I think you should do the same. Another four years of Trump will cause irreparable damage to the citizens of this nation. Riz, thank you for that. It was really brave. I know our listeners will appreciate your candor. And they'll either be able to relate or empathize with uh, your situation and the, the commentary that went with it. Thank you. That's pretty much the end of this episode. We went we went a little longer than usual, but I think we got we got to a lot of stuff. I hope you guys find it interesting. And we will have our bonus interview episode. Tell us a little bit about it, Jay. So coming up, uh, posted separately, we're going to have an interview with Charlie and Lisa Spees. This is Inside Baseball. It was a really fun interview to do. I've known them for a long time. They're family friends. Actually, Lisa introduced me to my wife. But they've been running PACs and Super PACs since the inception of both institutions. They've worked for a great many candidates. They're still very active in Washington today. And as I said, it's as much Inside Baseball as we've had on the podcast. It's an exciting interview. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, this is, a, this is a perfect example of an interview where there were two very nice people who I disagreed with on a lot of things, but we were still able to find some things that I did agree on. And it's a good outline for how you could sit down and listen to what people think and not demonize them and not name call. And, you know, we get to some of that. And I think, you know, it's a good example of measured discourse, even when you completely disagree with the people that you're talking to. Absolutely. All right. With that being said, thank you all for joining us for episode seven. Make sure to go to downthemiddlepod.com to find out more info and contact us. If you send us questions, we'll answer them on the air, on the air. Follow us on social media. It's at Down the Middle Podcast on Instagram, at Down the Middle PC on Twitter, and at Down the Middle Pod on Facebook. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening. You can find me at, at Justin Siegel on Twitter and Instagram. And Riz, where can, where can we find you? Find me as usual at, at Rob Leifer on Twitter. And you could again, search for Rob Leifer on Facebook. I, as I've said before, I am the best looking Rob Leifer. This is going to be an ongoing bit, isn't it? <laughs> it is. It's, it's a thing. But, uh, you know, the other thing we wanted to say is that we really do want you guys to engage with us. Um, I know a lot of people are very sensitive about putting their political opinions uh, out in the world. So we're trying to come up with a way that you can maybe do that anonymously. If you have questions, you have critiques, you want us to answer questions uh, on the on the air, you know, let's get into that more. We would love to 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 do more of that. Yeah, this is a show about uh, civil discourse. And, you know, even if you don't want your name associated with that specifically, we're going to figure out a way where you can still ask questions, you can still get involved in the discussion. It's never been more important to have this discussion. So we welcome all of that feedback. And we look forward to hearing from you guys. Absolutely. Thank you all for joining us. And uh, we're really enjoying this. It's been a good outlet for both Jay and I. We're happy we took a few days to let you catch up. And uh, we will see you next week. All right. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Bye bye.